practice was like and what the effect was. Certainly for me, in my observation of seeing smiles and laughter and tears and uh, kind of a, an effervescent energy, there was a lot of, of, of um, ease and joy and the sense of well-being as I was just in the space with everyone doing contemplations on joy. And, you know, and watching your faces and your brightening and the relaxation and the flow and the giggling and the hugs and the, and the ease. It was beautiful. And it's probably not that often that we spend three hours contemplating goodness, our own goodness. And I loved it, you know, that in the end, you know, Sharon was asking us to marinate, marinate in our own goodness. It's exquisite. Marinate in our own goodness. And it's not that often that we probably marinate in our own goodness. And look at the result. Notice the result. The buoyancy, the effervescence, the energy, the capacity, the ability to turn towards what is when we spend a little bit of time marinating in our own goodness. Now, one of the blessings of spending a number of years living in a monastery is is, is that it's a a crossroads of different cultures. And one of the things that that I saw or I heard about was what uh, the Sri Lankan community would sometimes refer to as the Good Karma book. And we hear that, and you know, you know, our eyes go askance. You know, what could that possibly mean? <clears throat> but in what I understood that to be is a practice of of writing down the things of generosity or kindness or sacrifice that one did, and keeping a record of it from the time one is a child. <clears throat> So if a family makes a, an almsgiving to the monastery, they take note and they write it down that on this day we gave alms to the monastery. Or if somebody does a fundraiser for the orphans or brings food to the homeless shelter or helps the widows or, um, you know, the 10,000 things that we do, they write it down in a book. And then when they're sick, when they're not feeling well, when their mind is low, they get out the book and they read it. Years, decades, a lifetime of acts of generosity. 
And when a person is dying, they bring out the book and they read the acts of generosity that have taken place over a whole lifetime. And so there's a way in which a monastery in the crossroads of cultures can be a a fertilization of ideas and practices that are ennobling, that we can pick up. It's not part of our culture, but we can adopt it. You know, we can spend an hour or just some minutes every day thinking about the acts of generosity that we remember that we did when we were children, that our family did, that we did when we were teenagers, the ways we helped our friends, the things that we gave up in order that somebody else could have something, so that we can continue to marinate in our own goodness. And use that as a deliberate leverage against the things that we normally experience. (coughs) Our doubt, our self-judgment, our feeling of inadequacy, of being insufficient. We've got ammunition. that we don't have to believe the same old stories all of the time. A reality check. And so there can be a practice of just reflecting on one's own goodness as a daily part of what one does in life. And take a journal and making note of what it is that you're remembering and what it is that you're reflecting on so that when you're feeling low and you're not able to remember, it's right there in front of you. You can pick it up and read it. You don't have to remember. And just let that feeling of goodness saturate, permeate, marinate. And so one of the beauties of community is is that we can do that for each other. We can mirror for each other. We can be present and witness each other's beauty, goodness. The conditions which with ease and well-being are part of your life. And notice when they are witnessed, how they are magnified how the marination gets deeper, soaks deeper into our bones. When somebody sees us seeing that about ourselves. And so the, the potency of the relational practice is just this. The power of goodness is magnified and in the magnification of our own capacity to know our own goodness and be present in our own goodness, the insights about how the other bits and pieces and layers link together begin to start coming and the whole thing starts to unravel. We begin to see the layers of the onion. 
without it being such this monumental effort of me trying to do it. It's insight revealing itself through the co-arising of presence that is supported by two people with interest and curiosity witnessing each other. Now the whole afternoon was based on the insight dialogue, trusting emergence. Letting go, being in flow, relinquishing control. And you can see that when you cultivate that quality of interest in joy, in goodness, in ease, in well-being, how that supports letting go, flow, relinquishing control. But what wasn't said and what underpins the obstacles to doing all of that are the manifold expressions of craving and grasping. And so what I wanted to talk about tonight was some of the ways those things are experienced and the layers, the nuances of what is available to us in our inquiry as we start this journey of exploration and how some of these things dovetail and create a web that requires finessing to understand, to hold, to see, and to get some leverage underneath that we have some perspective around it. The Buddha speaks about craving in terms of the craving for sensuality, the craving for food, the craving for water, the craving for beautiful colors, the craving for physical touch. As one component of craving. He also speaks about the craving for becoming, being someone. And I remember living in Amravati, that it was amusing to us, or at least it was amusing to me sometimes, the way becoming would manifest, because it's a little bit surprising sometimes the way we can get absolutely identified. And so in a monastery just as in a retreat center where there's not a whole lot of exciting things happening. You know, lunch and the Dharma talk are like the top (laughs) register on the excitement list. So somebody came 
you know, they had been assigned chores and their chore was cleaning the bathroom. And, and she came horrified that she had become the bathroom cleaner and had all of these opinions about the right way the bathroom should be cleaned or not cleaned and how deeply offended she would be if somebody left the bathroom a mess. She had become the bathroom cleaner. And this is what happens when we peel away the layers of identification and the complexity and we reduce some of the sensory input that we grasp on to anything will do, really. And so becoming is this wanting to be. And so Ruth has this beautiful quote here. We are in training to be nobody special. This is an antidote to becoming. Just being ordinary. And then what can also happen in addition to wanting to be someone special and to have a position and to have one's opinion count and to be able to prevail is the non-becoming, not wanting to feel, not wanting to show up, not wanting to know about things. I don't want to know about it. Don't tell me. And we can do that with ourselves. You know, I'm just not going to pay attention to the fact that my mind just went berserk. (laughs) (laughs) And we can do that with each other. Just absent ourselves, withdraw, and not be available. And so it looks like you're looking at a person, but nobody's home. In extreme expressions of the desire for non-becoming is the, is the longing to die, to sit for suicide. That somehow the imagination is, is that the problem is in our body, and if we get rid of our body, we get rid of the problem. The longing not to be here, not to feel, not to feel incarnate. not to have to navigate the complexity of this world. I mean, I can definitely relate. I feel that all the time. So another way in which we can look at where grasping is, is where we watch the way ignorance flows. So if we look at the asavas or the outflows, we can notice that we can grab hold of certain rites and rituals. You know, we get a form, we get a structure, and we grab hold of it as if that by itself is going to be the thing that's going to do it for us. You might have noticed the possibility that grasping arises around our view 
about how things are supposed to be. We can also have a strong identification with the sense of me as being somehow separate and solid and existing. And so all of these places are like our, our, our nooks and crannies where we can watch grasping. We can watch it arise. We can see how it manifests. We can see the, 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 the dis-ease, the distress, the suffering that happens when we buy into that and run with it. And so in all of these situations, there's an opportunity of watching where there is a, a lack of flow. There is a longing to be in control. There isn't letting go. And the observation of all of that is the way we begin to start unraveling the whole cycle. But any wheel needs lubrication. And marinating in our own goodness is as good a lubrication as I know of. To help us be able to constantly turn to and meet the places where we're holding on and just notice the tension of that when we are saturated with the feeling of our own goodness it gives us contrast to know what it feels like to let go and how much more easeful that is and so for some where the tendencies for each of us where we find the tenacity of gripping when we counter it with the knowing our own goodness it supports relaxing relinquishing we are able to find another way so the Buddhist teachings is comprehensive in terms of looking at the map of where we get stuck and giving us instructions so how we can focus our attention to be supporting letting go and his encouragement in most of the suttas was not about focusing on external conditions. Not how she or he or Z are doing it not the way I need them to do in order for me to let go. But to turn attention back here onto how is it that I'm holding? What is it that I'm holding? Where is it that I'm holding that makes it so difficult for me to release the holding. Now, as monastics, one of the things that we did regularly in the monastery was recite the, the requisites, reflections around the requisites. We need food, we need lodging, we need medicine, we need robes. But in the requisites, there isn't anything about friendship. 
But the Buddha, in his conversation with Ananda, Ananda, who was his chief disciple, chief attendant, came to him one day and he says, You know, Buddha, I think I got it figured out. You know, I really think I've got it sorted. I think, I think the way it is, is, is that, you know, spiritual friends is at least half of this. And the Buddha said, don't say that, Ananda. Don't say that. It's not half. It's the whole of the spiritual life. It's the whole of the spiritual life. It's having good friends. So it doesn't show up on the requisite list. It's got a place of its own. It's like you can't do it on your own. So now fast forward 2,600 years and we come into a modern world and in the last 100 years or so we have the benefit of developmental psychology, attachment theory, and we have all kinds of maps and languaging of ways in which we crave that supports our development psychologically, our maturation as human beings, that in some ways is is slightly distinct from the aspiration to actualize one's ultimate nature. And so when we look at attachment theory, the whole word attachment has a completely different connotation than it does in Buddhist language. In Buddhist language, attachment is the thing that we're wanting to let go of. Be very careful around. Not have. And when we look at developmental psychology and attachment theory, attachment is absolutely fundamentally required for health and well-being as a human organism as we are growing up. It's the same word, and it has a a radically different meaning. So in attachment theory, it's talking about the, the bond between primary caregiver and infant, and how when there is a secure attachment, there's confidence that one will be, one's needs will be met, One has the comfort one needs. One is rejoiced and celebrated for doing things. One is supported and comforted and reassured when we we scrape our knees and we get into trouble. It's a secure place from which we can explore in the world. And a whole huge part of my practice over the last 15 years has been in working with my own attachment wounding. 
and bringing the care and the kindness and the supportive conditions necessary in order to move from an insecure attachment to secure attachment. And this is a kind of craving that actually leads to wholeness rather than the kind of craving that leads to suffering. And so we need to be careful about the way in which we view our cravings and differentiate between the kinds of cravings that cause more suffering and the kinds of craving that leads us to do the work that's needed to bring about integration and wholeness. And over the years, there has been a significant amount of improvement. And I notice I still can sometimes get caught out. And so not too long ago, I was speaking with somebody with whom afterwards, in hindsight, I could see there was a brother projection. I wanted him to be the kind of brother that I didn't have. I have a very loving brother. And I love my brother. He loves me. And I'm not confused about that. But there were some ways in which I didn't feel seen by him. So this other person is an opportunity for me to, without my knowing it, hope that he'll be able to see me in the way that I haven't been seen by my brother. And there was a something that I shared, and his response illuminated to me how unseen I felt. And I just went thunk. I was like a ton of bricks was in my heart. I felt devastated. And so it took a little bit of unraveling for me to begin to get a sense of, well, what's happening here? Why am I so hurt? Why am I so devastated? And then it's like, oh, and then the layers begin to unravel. There's a longing to be seen, a craving to be seen, and that craving was not met. And with that craving in this instance with this person that I actually don't know very well, it opens up this experience of, as a child, growing up in my family, of not feeling seen, and the hunger to feel seen. And as I'm craving and hungering to feel seen, energetically I'm withdrawn. It's very hard for me to engage fully and be present. And so what I've learned is to notice what's happening and to not expect it to be not happening. And to turn all of my attention to what is happening and to bring to myself the care, the kindness, and the seeing that I longed for but didn't get. To bring to myself the nourishment that supports the ease and well-being and not expect it from outside. Now, it certainly can come outside. It does come from outside. There are plenty of people that I'm in that kind of relationship where I see and am seen. But to demand it puts me in the position of constantly feeling on the defensive 
and anxious about whether or not I am going to get it and if so, the right amount and at the right time by the right person when it's blue. (laughs) It's got to be blue. Got to have it blue, otherwise it's not going to work. And so I've learned, and it hasn't been an easy learning, it's been decades of learning, how to recognize this, turn my attention towards it, and to bring to myself what I need. To be seen. So, we have all kinds of different needs. And when I was looking at some of the material that I have, Ken Wilber has written a new book. It's called Integral Mindfulness, and it's excellent. It has a very clear, detailed map of, of various different ways of levels of growth and ways of practicing with it. And so, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is it starts out with physical needs, self-preservation needs, needs for power, needs for belonging, and needs for self-actualization. And we can notice ourselves getting stuck by craving for these different kinds of needs. Marshall Rosenberg, who um, developed nonviolent communication, has a whole list of about 40 different things around different needs. And he's broken them up into different categories. The need for autonomy, the need for celebration, the need for play, the need for integrity, the needs that all are supportive of understanding our interdependence, physical nurturance, spiritual connection, their needs. And so we can have many different kinds of craving. Some of them, when we follow them, lead to more suffering. Many of them do not. And so we need to develop the discernment to be able to figure out What's what? And how is it that it is supportive to respond to what's arising? dialogue we can notice a myriad of different kinds of cravings arise as we are speaking we can notice the hunger to be seen the the longing to connect the 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 longing for intimacy we can also notice the the fear of being seen 
the fear of being exposed or vulnerability. (coughs) And when we're dropped in and tracking, we're watching all of this arising and, and feeling it. Noticing the impact in our body, noticing the way in which it colors our our interest, our curiosity, our energy. We can notice, you know, subtleties or nuances of, of, of the way power emerges, uh, competitiveness or, or, or envy. We can notice the, the sweetness of, of connection, of, of relinquishing or letting enough of ourselves be revealed that we can we can touch into the tenderness of of meeting another person without having to defend or prove or make ourselves bigger or smaller we can just allow ourselves to be as we are experiencing ourselves in the moment. So one of the things that I've been working with in the last short while is beginning to see if it's possible to start mapping out or start thinking about this whole process of development as a practice that's not separate but distinct from the practice of awakening. And what kinds of focuses of attention support our ability to navigate this process of becoming whole and cohesive and relaxed in our own skin and able to tolerate our own fears and vulnerabilities? and experiences of not being seen. And the way that can trigger memory of something that happened in the past that might have been very loaded and excruciatingly painful. And so there's this kind of like constellation of moving parts of developmental parts and attachment pieces and psychological health and waking up and craving for wholeness and craving for well-being and craving for happiness is part of the movement part of the constellation part of the matrix of what we observe when we 
notice what's going on. Now, in, in my observation, meditation experience is classically aimed at supporting us waking up to what is ultimate, what is transcendent, what is beyond birth and death. That's its main aim. And I don't have any complaints about the way that it operates. I think it does a fine job of doing that. But I also observed in myself that I could be committed in a meditation practice for decades and still not be integrating some of these developmental parts of myself psychologically. And I certainly observed that in my brothers and sisters around me. People could have profound insight, be exquisitely eloquent on a Dhamma seat, and there could be a trail of chaos that followed them <laughs> when they got off the seat. And somehow, for a variety of reasons, my aspiration was to try and put the pieces together. And so it's like on some level, I don't mind or care where the suffering is coming from, if it's pre-personal suffering or personal suffering or transpersonal suffering. Suffering has a particular taste. And it's very distinctly different from the experience of marinating in one's own goodness. So, on one hand, I don't particularly care where it's coming from and that I feel committed and passionate to being able to address suffering. And on another hand, it takes, or it has taken me, a lot of years and a fair amount of discernment to begin to start knowing and naming the different ways that craving arises and to develop skills and appropriate responses to them when it is appearing in different spheres. So, for example, in, in the group today, I was sharing how there was a, a period of time for uh, several years when I, I, I was, had fallen in love with somebody and I was navigating the, just the, the, raw, the rawness of that experience. And, you know, being in love and being celibate and being committed to a life of celibacy is a potent container. And it's not for everybody. I'm not advocating it is. But when one is in it 
and one is navigating that kind of stuff, it can be just incredibly intense. And for me, it was excruciating. And there were times when I felt like, you know, I think, I actually don't think I have it within me to do this. It feels like it's too intense. And it was in that cauldron of the passion of sexual desire and longing and the craving for emotional intimacy and connection that I began to turn my attention to look at where is this actually coming from? What is the longing that is actually fueling this? And it was in that cauldron that I began to see the real hunger was not for sexual intimacy. It was for being seen. It was for being held. It was for being safe. It was for being comforted. It was the longings that weren't met when I was an an infant that was expressing itself through an adult wish an adult way of getting those needs met. But when I tuned in to the child, when I tuned in to the vulnerability of being tiny and could dial into what was needed and bring those qualities to myself, then slowly, 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 the passion, the longing for sexual intimacy, the fantasy of fulfillment that would come through that avenue began to subside. And what came in its place was that sense of being able to relax in my own skin. So the craving was manifesting in one form. But what was driving it was something altogether different. And when I developed the discernment to be able to get through the appearance to the underlying cause and develop the skill to turn to meet those needs, with care, with respect, with presence, with appreciating the vital importance of doing this. What initially was experienced as unmanageable desire eventually released. So it's a really important question to look at what do we long for, where do what do we crave, what are what are our hungers? And to become familiar with them. (laughs) And to explore them with incredible curiosity 
to see is is the way that it is manifesting the whole story or is the way that it is manifesting a cover story for what's actually underneath it and when we begin to see the dovetailing between the hunger for connection the way attachment theory operates that we actually need to be able to trust as children, as infants to learn how to self-regulate we need the input of another to be able to know what's going on in ourself and we come into a situation where you know there's just all the kinds of stuff going on we can maybe begin to have some clarity about what's happening and a little bit more skill in how to turn towards it and receive it and allow it the space to unravel we don't have to fix it we don't have to make it go away but how can we turn towards it and bring it the marination of our own goodness the positive qualities that help us see more clearly so that it releases So I have megalomaniac tendencies, I'm aware of that. <laughs> and having a dependent origination retreat over six days could qualify. You know, what on earth can we possibly understand in six days? And yet, if I were to have a wish list, it would be that we have some sense of the dovetailing of these different ways that craving operates and some sense of curiosity and respect for creating the conditions needed to hold it so that we can relax with our process and feel more skill in our responses that the whole thing is not a solid black box where we are oblivious to what's going on and how these things are activated and how to respond to it and all we're doing with is hitting the floor Do you guys need some help? (laughs) (laughs) So today's contemplation, this afternoon's contemplation, really is critical 
because without having some sense of that kind of joy or the qualities of our own goodness, we don't really have capacity to do the work. It's not like it's a blip of fun in an, in a in a slog. <laughs> you think that's hilarious? <laughs> it's the fuel. It's the gas. It's what makes the engine go. It's what makes it possible. And so part of our skill is to learn how to stay with the, with, the, with the inquiry and constantly be nourishing and resourcing. Nourishing and resourcing. Nourishing and resourcing. Nourishing and resourcing. And the more that we stay nourished and resourced, the more we'll be able to bring our attention and our interest and our curiosity to seeing this dovetail, this web of the way craving arises and the nuances of it and the different kinds and the ones where we need to take incredible care not to follow and the ones that we need to take incredible care to follow. So that we can relax in our own skin and be with what is and be with each other. So perhaps enough for one evening, enough to consider for an evening. Thank you. So let's turn the lights up a bit and we can do 